0: Hey, it's Andrew, the Director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today, literary-arts.org forward slash donate.
1: Welcome to The Archive Project. I'm Amanda Bullock, Director of Public Programs at Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Today's episode is an Archive Project exclusive and a collaboration with the Oregon Symphony featuring their open music program. Open Music is a new concert series in which composers featured in the classical subscription season offer a window into their spirit and creative process through an evening of music and conversation at an intimate venue in Portland. In March, composer Missy Mazzoli joined the program. Time Out New York called Mazzoli Brooklyn's post-millennial Mozart, and she was recently commissioned by the Metropolitan Opera to adapt George Saunders' novel Lincoln in the Bardo. At Missy's Open Music Evening, one of the pieces featured was an aria titled Who Owns the Land from her opera Proving Up, which is based on a story from Karen Russell's collection Vampires and the Lemon Grove. This intersection of music and literature seemed ripe for further discussion, so we gathered Missy, Karen, and Open Music host and Oregon Symphony creative chair Gabriel Kahane at Literary Arts for a conversation about adaptation. These are three creative geniuses, and I love hearing them explore the narrative strengths of both the page and the stage. They go beyond direct adaptation, touching on how, as artists, any sort of media consumption, like reading a book or watching TV or even hearing a story on the train, becomes source material, and how something ends up translated from one medium to another. Like the open music program, the conversation is a fascinating look into the creative process. Let's join Gabriel Kahane.
2: I want to talk a little bit about genre um missy you and i had another conversation a few days ago in which you embrace the the moniker composer as as a descriptor for for what you do and we'll then i think move into talking about genre whether it's opera or genre fiction but i wonder just as a as a starting place missy would you talk a little bit about why you embrace this sort of fuddy-duddy notion of composer, which I, I embrace it too. <laughs> I know you do. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, I've I've always identified as a composer. I think that that's a term that's open-ended enough to mean a lot of different things. I mean, it just means someone who makes music. So I think right. that, you know, singer-songwriters are composers. People improvising in their bedrooms are composers. And I, I love the openness of that, but I also really love the connection to tradition. You know, I... Like a lot of people, you know, grew up taking piano lessons. That's how I got my start in this whole crazy business. And so you're playing a lot of music that is hundreds of years old. And I I loved that. I don't see that as a limitation. I, I love being connected to a tradition that extends back to the beginning of time. And, yeah.
2: and how do you imagine, you know, in this moment when we're sort of reconsidering a lot of history uh, having to do with so many things, how does one reconcile an embrace of tradition and you know music by lots of dead European white men with uh, a sort of a progressive politics and moving forward I mean it's something that I also very much believe in in my own work but I'm curious to hear you talk about it
0: sure well I don't see the two things at in at at odds with each other I mean I, I do I I'm really about redefining the term composer and yeah. and specifically a lot of it is is visual and intuitive when people hear the word composer they think dead white man right and i will until the end of my days be standing <laughs> up in front of audiences and saying i am a composer i am a composer and i will say the same thing over and over again and i don't care that it's repetitive yeah. Yeah. i think that this needs to be said and i'm also so much of my work is about bringing even younger um, women, non-binary people, people who don't fit the traditional yeah. um, I- intuitive idea of, of that's what a composer is, um, bringing them in front of people. And, and if you see this a hundred times, yeah. you will start to rethink the idea of a composer. But I think that the, the pure idea of a composer as someone who makes music is something that I embrace. I just think we need to widen our, yeah. our sense of who that could be.
2: Absolutely. And I would argue that we've seen a lot of progress in the last decade I mean, certainly in the time that you and I have been working, even in the last five years, it feels like there's been a real sea change in representation. I don't know if you feel similarly.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, there was nowhere to go, nowhere else to go. (laughs) (laughs) Unless we're going to go into a regressive dictatorship, which you never know. (laughs) So so from
2: from the moniker of composer to thinking about genre, we'll talk about the opera. Um, So Karen, the story Proving Up, which comes from your wonderful collection Vampires in the Lemon Grove uh, is the source material for Missy's opera of the same name and we can't really talk about the story without talking about the Homestead Act I want to get back to this conversation about genre and specifically horror fiction but before we do that I'm wondering if you can just give us a little refresher for those of us who either slept through 11th grade US history or failed it as I did Um, what was the Homestead Act
3: so the Homestead Act um, is legislation passed during the Civil War, and it's going to make 160 acres of land available to um, any single head of household over the age of 21. So it's it's remarkable in you know for many reasons. One is that for the first time, um, African Americans can claim property. Um, single women, you know, this is, is sort of making property available to groups who have kind of historically been excluded from land ownership in this country. Um, At the same time, though, it's weaponizing settlers. Um, So this war, you know, as uh, the Union is sort of setting up this vision of what America is going to be, the war in some ways gets transferred to the West and to these plain states. So I think that's the part of the story that isn't always told, you know, I think it's we really celebrate. Um, you know, immigrants are pouring into the country uh, during this period. I think one in five. Um, this story is set in the plains of Nebraska, on the, the southern southwest prairie of Nebraska. So one in five of the people who are coming to sort of like prove up on the land, um, they're either very new citizens or they're coming directly from European countries. So in some cases, it's the dispossessed of Europe that are now you know they've been persecuted, or they've not, they've had no opportunities in their country of origin, and they're coming here. So it's 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 that's that there's that part of the American story, and then of course it's underwritten by tremendous violence. I mean, prior to 1861, the plains are largely undivided, and they're held by numerous tribes. Um, you know, and I think, you know, if you go back to the 1800s, there are something like 40,000 Native. Uh, residents of Nebraska and like 2,000 white settlers. And Mm -hmm. you just watch, you know, a flood um, of settlement during this period. It's happening so rapidly. And the union has the goal of that, quote unquote, organizing the West. So between 1861 and 1865, the lines that we see today are largely in place. So there's a real violence, you know, um, uh, to carve up this country too and give settlers 160 acres. You know, one of the blinders that the u.s federal government is wearing at this time is to believe that this is arable land um you know that this is farmable land and that you can cultivate a crop like wheat out there i mean until sort of the 19th century that you know in the mid-19th century we don't have the kind of irrigation systems in place to make that feasible so these a lot of these settlers are set up for total failure so i think um the horror. Piece of this is really, you know, that that photo negative of the American dream. I mean, most people go out there and they fail, and they they, you know, there's there's that sort of violence. You know, people lose children and family members. They lose their their savings. They, um, you know, you're you're supposed to be on this land and improve it, right? So proving up, you have to. The tenancy requirement is five years, um, and this story started because I spoke to someone who's, uh, or the, the the first kind of kernel of inspiration was. I was doing research for like another project on the L train in Chicago and these strangers talked to me and they said, you know, our um, our ancestors were Mennonite farmers mm. and they one of the requirements to prove up was you had to have a window. You had to build a structure of like a certain dimension and you had to have like a window and glass was like rarer than rain out there. The trains never came to their settlement. So they all shared this one glass window mm. and it just like, oh, it just, you know, sparked Um that, that that idea of that sort of and you know what it kind of stands in for too. Um.
2: I want to go deeper into this question of genre fiction, but first I want to double back to the discussion of the Homestead Act. It seems to me that the sort of irony of the, the Homestead Act is that the union is using this as a way of um, sort of rebalancing power. Uh, with the what will become the Confederacy, um, but of course, in so doing, we're we're dealing with um, redistributing the immiseration of mm-hmm. one one group of marginalized people for another.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was just reading Heather Cox Richardson, who I love, um, talks about the American paradox. You know, where it's sort of so this nation is founded um, with these beautiful ideals right equality um, of opportunity but equality definitely for some groups and not others and that when you see that war that has just been fought you know for for you know the freedom you know the the 14th amendment i mean native peoples are excluded from that chinese uh immigrants to this country are excluded from that i mean there's still these blocks of people who who really can't benefit from um something like the homestead act and even those who can't i mean these are marginal lands this is you know um uh, you know the Kincaid Act follows, and the and then the Dawes Act, um, or the um, the General Allotment Act, which is really designed as like a land grab to get get more get more of uh, Native Americans land.
2: One of the experiences that I had reading your story, Karen, was that if I'm not mistaken, there are no Indigenous people who are present, and yet the story is haunted by them. Um, which feels like a kind of extraordinary act of um, the, the ways in which sort of negative space and absence can sometimes mm-hmm. speak the loudest. Uh, but it also feels like it could be a kind of Rorschach test, right? Depending on who's reading the story. And I wonder to what extent is that, that absence deliberate and, and how, how did you sort of play with that calculation, Give, you know, going back to this idea of horror and the, the incredible violence that underpins our our history, right. um, as much here in Oregon as as anywhere else.
3: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think, and that's a great point to make, is that we're all living on still many, most, most everybody, you know, on this continent. Um, you know that the history of the West doesn't start with um, non-native settlers <laughs> arriving there. I think that when I wrote this story, I, it's so tightly focused on this one family, the Zegners, and then even more, and then you then you're with your their son for. Um, most of the story. So it's like a pretty small cast of characters. Um, And I think that that haunted quality, I think I sort of understood it as both, you know, they, in my, I had done some research so I'm like, well, this would have been, this was the Pawnee lands and they cede territory through these treaties. The U.S. federal government never upholds their side. And by the time the Zegners have arrived, they've been removed to Oklahoma, removed being like one of the most heinous euphemisms Mm. um, for, you know, what was, ethnocide, genocide, you know, and this, this sort of really like a forced removal. None of these treaties were ever upheld. So there's already that, you know, um, humming in the background. But I also think, you know, there's this sense that like, wow, is there somebody riding around from homestead to homestead, <laughs> murdering settlers? And we're so accustomed. There's a long and disastrous history of conceiving of violence in the West as being sort of, oh, like circle the wagons. Because here come a band of Indians. I think that's sort of like imprinted on kids, our kids' age, mm-hmm. you know, or has been until relatively recently. So hopefully like the idea of like the sodbuster who is this sort of allegorical, larger than life mm-hmm. murderous character, you know, he's a white guy. He's a white he's a right. he's a sodbuster. He's right. someone who came out here to prove up on his land and look what right. he's become. Um, I can redo this quote that I that I read. I was it was humming in my it's not in the story. Mm-hmm. Um but this is just sort of what i think missy and royce channel this is the horror to me of that character and of sort of like that shadow side of the, the values that we correctly celebrate you know resilience and hard work and it's like but the collision of goodness in people and people and a desire to hold lands in many cases for very poor people who have never had the opportunity mm-hmm. to have a home in this country um that's some of the tragedy to me i guess so this is um massachusetts senator henry dawes he's reporting on his trip to indian territory to the board of indian commissioners um and this is what his finding is the head chief told us that there was not a family in the whole nation that had not a home of its own there is not a pauper in that nation and that nation does not owe a dollar it built its own capital in which we had this examination and built its own schools and hospitals yet the defect of the system was apparent they have got as far as they can go because they hold their land in common. Um, And he's referring to native peoples here. It is Henry George's system, and under that there is no enterprise to make your home any Mm. better than that of your neighbors. There's no selfishness, which is at the bottom of civilization, till these people will consent to give up their lands and divide them among their citizens so that each can own the land he cultivates. They will not make much progress. So that whole vision of progress, you know, being underwritten by this idea, you know, that like private property... You know that that's that's going to be the way forward. Sort of like this extractive right. capitalism, truly, that we're still living with. You know, right now, I think that's so much in the yeah. conversation. Um, and to the idea of like the omission, I would just say, you know, one thing that makes me a little, one thing that I, I'm thinking about in new work I'm writing too is just wanting to find ways to signal that um, there's also speaking of horror that trope of like Indian cemeteries, you know, and like and it's like no Indian, you know, Native people. There, it's. Um, there are so many tribes Um, it's not you know a monolith certainly and also they have a dynamic living history and bright future I mean they're they're with us here so just I I think that was one consideration writing it so to kind of signal that like you're you're gonna see it's it's a haunted story but it's haunted by all kinds of loss also lost to to um, settlers who are sort of crushed by their faith in this dream
2: so let's drill down a bit on this idea of genre I think that Sometimes in our moment, we, we live in th- this moment of fusion and hybridity. And it's almost as if, to to paraphrase the kids, genre is cringe. Mm-hmm. Like that to locate something within, within genre is, is either limiting or retrograde or reactionary. And yet I, I have found in a number of your stories this incredibly canny deployment of genre as a way of I think almost giving the reader a false sense of security of like, I know what this is. And then there's a turn. And I think I experienced that in in reading the story Proving Up where it's like, oh, it's a lovely story about pioneers. And then, oh no, it's actually not. But I wonder if you can uh, um, if you can talk about that a bit more. I mean, I'm also thinking of the title story, Vampires in the Lemon Grove, which is a vampire story. Yeah. And also the the first story in your collection, Orange World which is, um, if not a horror story, a kind of ghost story. In, in what ways do you find genre liberating and in, in what ways do you find it constraining?
3: That's such a great question. I mean, I, um, and I can't wait to hear uh, how this applies in, in music. I'm sure there's sort of similar, um, yeah, what's liberatory and what's constraining about kind of working in a genre. I, my favorite feeling um, in any work is sort of that tonal pivot and it is sort of the like Dorothy, we're not in Kansas anymore moment, Um, you know, uh, just sort of thinking that you're in one kind of story and discovering that that assumption set has now been detonated (laughs) and you were in another, you're in another sort of tale altogether and that slide, you know, sometimes I think it can be really sly and sometimes it is like quite ruthless and violent in a short story. Um, the prospectors, uh, which you mentioned, is it's set during the '30s, during the Great Depression, this boom and bust cycle here in Oregon on the coast. Um, and I, I always, I don't know if you've been to Timberline, Missy. I mean, it makes sense to me that The Shining is set there. Um, I went there. I don't. I am from Miami, so I just think like ski lifts are like insane, anyhow, and terrifying. I'm like, what? You're just gonna like sit on that chair? And like, you know, ride your butt up a mountain and you expect it to go well, you can't see anything about what's waiting for you at the top of the mountain. It just really seemed like an Icarus kind of a maneuver by our species, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that idea, I guess, even that image of like floating up on a chair and not really knowing, you know, trusting that you're in a fantasy and maybe discovering that you're in a nightmare for me what genre sort of opens up is an ability to like look at a kind of violence that we're really Mm. inured to Mm. and it's almost like um, that Flannery quote you know um, a truth is not distorted here rather a distortion is used to get at truth and I sort Mm. of that's Uh how I sort of think it Mm. operates it's like you something like you think you're like little house on the prairie and we know what to celebrate about this story look at their resilience look at what they're and it's like but what about (laughs) the real cost and folly you know and like could we look at, like, the blood-red underpinnings of this dream? Yeah. Is there a way to get there?
2: Missy, there are so many questions that I have. I guess, let me start with a general question about opera um, and source material. Proving Up is your third opera. Before that, um, the, your first opera was Songs from the Uproar, The Lives and Deaths of Isabel Eberhardt, which is not, strictly speaking, an adaptation. It is you're dealing with all all kinds of source materials, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, and then the adaptation of the Lars von Trier film, Breaking the Waves, and then Proving Up, and then you Mm -hmm. have two more in the works, I believe. I guess to start from the 30,000-foot view, how how do you organize, one, the ways in which you take in cultural matter? (laughs) I was having this, actually, conversation the other day with our mutual colleague, Caroline Shaw, we were going on a walk in my neighborhood and she said, we, we passed some rocks with some really beautiful moss. And she said, I'm reading a book about moss right now. <laughs> and I said, for work or pleasure? And she said, I don't know. <laughs> and that, that for me sort of typifies at least my relationship to everything that I encounter in the world. It might end up in the work, it might not. But I'm wondering for you as as someone who has become pretty strongly associated with opera uh, as a medium, even as you continue to write violin concertos, chamber music, and so on and so forth, how would you characterize your, your relationship to what you read, what you encounter, where you make sort of mental flags of like, oh, this might be source material. And then when you get to the point of, I think this might be source material, what is it about a work that tells you that the possibility of translation exists from one medium to another.
0: All great questions. I mean, for me, I I try not to walk through the world thinking, "What is my next opera going to be?" I mean, that sounds very <laughs> tense and boring. I didn't mean that. You know, I didn't mean that to be the question. No, 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 <laughs> totally. But I but I think that there is. I I try to pay attention to what is catching my eye over long periods of time. You know, so I, I'm very I'm someone who's very interested in in human beings and all of my work even the purely instrumental work is about these human stories and these human relationships and human folly and the way that we support each other in a beautiful way and the way that we undermine each other i mean this is infinitely fascinating
2: can you give an example of that in your instrumental music i'm just curious
0: um well you know i think the uh, the example that's on my mind is this most recent violin concerto called procession um which on, I started thinking about it, it which just, just premiered a couple weeks ago. Um, and I was thinking about rituals associated with healing. You know, we're coming out of this pandemic, hopefully. And, um, you know, was thinking historically about how do we use how do we used music in the past to heal? How have we used ritual? in a collective sense to heal and went all the way back to rituals around the plague and um, what people would do Mm. when plague entered a household to try to ward it off, to Mm. try to deal with it. I mean, it's unfathomable and it's just, you know, could always be worse. (laughs) (laughs) COVID, bad, plague, worse. (laughs) So
2: you were saying you don't walk through the world, uh, you know, like, where's my next opera? I gotta, you know, pluck it from the tree. Um, When you do encounter something that has the human, you, you know, you're describing the, the omnipresence of sort of human, human stories and psychology in the work. Let's just start uh, directly with Karen's story proving up. Had you been aware of her work for a while before you encountered that story? And, and can you describe the moment at which you thought this might be an opera?
0: Sure. So um, with my encounters with Karen's work is a perfect example of this process of discovering a compelling um, source for an opera in that I, I encountered her novel Swamplandia and um, loved it, you know, but wasn't, wasn't necessarily looking, it wasn't even writing opera at that point. So (laughs) this was like the furthest thing from my mind. And then um, I, you know, with the, um, the recession in um, 2008, I started thinking about the idea of writing an opera about the American dream. Mm. And so this was very vague. So this is this is all happening like years apart, you mm. know? And I, I thought, you know, that's gonna be too heavy-handed. What am I, you know, what does that even look like? What does that mean? And then um, you know, when Karen's book Vampires and Lemongrove came out, I immediately bought it just because I had loved her previous work and shared it with my librettist Royce Favrick, who said, you know, this is this is an opera. Mm. You know, like we Actually, we're looking at two stories in that book, um, Reeling for the Empire and um, "and then Proving Up, which are actually side by side <laughs> in the book. And, you know, he said either of these would make an amazing opera. And it, it occurred to me, oh, Proving Up, this is about the American dream. And this is a really strange and beautiful and unexpected way of talking about these things um, through, again, this story of these human beings right. and, and these people who are funny and weird and hopeful and... Um, and I also felt in, in you know, Karen mentioned earlier, the tonal pivot, which is something I also look for in in my own work and had never described it that way. It's such a beautiful phrase um, because, you know, you're the the motion of the story for me in my mind is going in one direction. And then when our our hero, the young Miles, um, this boy encounters the villain. The motion of the story goes in the other direction, you know, so it's like you think that the story is going to end one way and then mm. this person, this villain enters the story and pushes it back and it says like, no, 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 like this is not going where you thought it was. Right. And operatically, um, that's such an interesting thing to stage. And I think when we literally staged the story that way when we did it in Omaha and that, that it all takes place on a big runway the 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 motion of the opera is going one way, and then the sod buster enters from one mm. end and then pushes the, mm. the everyone back in the direction they came from. Mm. So That's, it's been really fun to like transpose that in a way that, um, you know, a, a story can't, you know, because it's not happening right in yeah. front of you. It's very fun,
2: Karen. When did, did the initial ask come through your publisher? How, how did this, how did it go down? And, and I'm, I'm curious to know, um, you know, artists feel all, all kinds of ways about having their work be manipulated, repurposed. From your perspective, how, how did you come to know of Missy that she was thinking about doing this project and what was your reaction?
3: Well, I, I will tell you, I, you know, I didn't have um, much familiarity with opera, to be honest. I think that maybe my agent was like, um, these people want an option proving up for an opera. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And I spoke to a, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Stephen O'Connor, actually, who was like, you have won the artistic jackpot. <laughs> he was like, you are the luckiest. I mean, he just explained. He was like, sent me. And then I watched, you know, some of um, Missy and Rice's earlier work. And I was like, oh. I think something about like also then so then I so I don't know. I'm not super involved actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and then several years later, I go with my like then eight-month-old son and mom to Washington, to the Washington National and like we came in for rehearsals right when this character, the sodbuster who to me really in some ways allegorizes that terrible violence. I mean, he's he's cast as a man, right? Now, but he has this larger than life presence in my mind, this like looming threat. Um and just sort of, you know, is, is, I hope, hopefully terrifying. I mean, that's the, sort of the horror of the story incarnated in this figure who is sort of like a greed and a delusion that has like outlived. It's, you know, anything kind of humane. Whatever that dream of like having a home that seems so beautiful actually and, and basic and like endemic to our species, whatever that becomes, um, you know, can become. It's monstrous, you know, shadow side. Um, So anyway, but I, so I walk in there and I listen to, I'm blinking on the singer's name, Missy, I'm sorry. Um, Andrew, whoever was, was, he was in, that was in Omaha. Oh,
2: Who was cast
3: in Washington? Um, He's a beautiful singer. Anyway, where I'm here, I like, just like chills right up my spine and I was like, wow. I just had never, I mean, Um, I don't know how to, there's really no way probably to overstate The disorientation of of like walking into a room, I've never, you know, nothing of mine has ever been adapted Mm. for film or TV, but also something about like what a voice can do, how it turns Mm -hmm. your body into an instrument. It felt really wild. It was one of the coolest things that has ever Mm. happened to me to walk into this room not knowing what to expect Mm. and to watch this scene that I had imagined Mm. in dimensions before me and Missy just like, just like turning my own vertebra into part of the show. It's so great. (laughs) Yeah, and
0: that singer um, is Timothy Bruno. Thank you. So shout out to Tim Bruno, who Mm -hmm. was a young artist at the time. So this is someone who's in their 20s, like, uh, you know, taking on this massive role and just crushed it.
2: Was there, though, any discomfort um, with the idea of, you know, when we finish a piece of work in any medium, we may want to continue to tweak it. But in some sense, we feel like the thing is whole, and this this gets back to sort of this question of adaptation, um, sense of ownership, mm-hmm. sense of you know our relationship to the object. Did you was there any of that discomfort, or or had your mutual friend sort of mm-hmm. um, allayed any you know concerns that you might I, have?
3: You know, I think it feels like so much its own creation mm-hmm. now. It feels separate from me too you know it feels like totally distinct from the story in a way to me um i've heard i've heard friends you know i definitely have had friends who have had film adaptations and stuff where they were like "Uh oh like they cut 50 percent of my dialogue or you know but i don't it's i think because it just feels like such a profound um creation of its own in its own right yeah and i um i love uh royce's libretto so much i was telling missy i think he's a real structural genius i think the ways in that he found what repetition does how you can sort of hear some of that tonal slide starting to happen just through the repetition of the you know um uh the the dream starting to degrade into a nightmare um yeah i just was really moved um so yeah i don't i don't i don't know i i I feel really lucky (laughs) in that
2: i i would i would agree um I wanna to return to something you said earlier that the, the genesis of the story began when you encountered some folks who were descended from Mennonites on a train mm-hmm. in Chicago and that they had shared a single window. Mm-hmm. And the aria that we heard uh, at the open music concert, um, which is sort of the, the climactic summation in, in a way, uh, who owns the land, Um, dwells on this question of, you know, does a window make a home? Um, There are ways in which Karen describes the window that struck me. And I'm curious, Missy, your your reaction to this. There are three moments. um, First, she writes, she polishes the glass by licking the end of her braid into a fine point and whisking it over the surface like a watercolorist. Now, the window is the only clean thing in our house. It's the size of a hanging painting, and then later, miles, uh, if I remember correctly, describes himself as uh, feeling like an artist with the window. I'm just so struck by by that I mean it it just feels like the the dimensions of what you know the ways in which we we look um. I'm wondering with all these references, Missy, to the window as art or. Facilitating art, art making. Can you talk about your relationship to that central metaphor and, um, and I, and then I guess maybe after that, I'm I'm curious to hear more, maybe from the the history side of things, Karen. Like, what what was it about the glass window and and the Homestead Act? To you first, Missy. Yeah.
0: Um. I, you know, it's, I'll, I'll be totally honest. I I had forgotten that those beautiful images, the beautiful image of the, of Ma licking her braid to clean the window, which uh, is, it's, you know, you you do, you, every genre has its strengths and opera has so much going for it, but it, what it doesn't have going for it is that intimacy. Mm-hmm. And that, or I should say that that intimacy of, of seeing, of having that moment work in an opera. Of course. Is like so hard to achieve when you have, every, you're like, singing to the back of a football field, you know? of course, of course. Um, So, uh, yeah, but I will say, I mean, for me, the window felt like, I was like, oh, this is the ultimate red tape. This is the Mm -hmm. ultimate bureaucracy. And this is like, I I was thinking of these much more mundane moments in my own life where it's like, you're at the DMV and you finally are gonna get your license renewed. And they're (laughs) like, but we need the original (laughs) copy of your birth certificate. And I'm like, you know and obviously the stakes are much higher for the for the settlers but um but that everything hinging on this this just piece of glass like everything hinging on something that has no real doesn't really contribute to their lives at all it's just a symbol so
2: right yeah. karen can you illuminate any further what this i mean was it just red tape or is there is there a reason for the the requirement of the glass window
3: you know i think they just they did have these like sort of dimensional requirements for like a structure. you couldn't just like you know throw up your um they, they wanted you to have something i guess that felt like a viable structure on the land and part of that is maybe to discourage speculation i mean they mm. had all kinds of land speculation i think we are sort of um familiar with this the, the yeoman farmer who comes to and there, there definitely was that but i think many of the earliest um um You know non-native inhabitants people kind of heading out there were just like it was a land grab and it was you know people wanting to get the land by the railroads people who had no intention of living there but just um uh you know it was real estate uh wheeling and dealing but i think you know to be i think the window was not i don't know that that was like universally applied i do i just like the kafka like strangeness of Mm -hmm. it and the dark hilarity of that sort of bureaucracy Mm -hmm. and we all know how these kinds of policies that can seem whimsical or absurd or like, you know, um, vexing. But there, but there's, you know, then you look at, particularly with real estate, right? It's like, well, who is excluded from um, the horizon light in this country? How, is it, how does it happen? It's, it's right. legislation.
2: Missy, I want to return to the question of the encounter with potential source material. And you described with with Proving Up that there was a thematic interest you'd been thinking about in opera about the American dream, the failure of the American dream. But I'm also curious to go a little bit deeper um, about this sort of relationship between movement narrative on the page or on screen and how it manifests uh, on stage. It seems to me that you have a kind of preternatural gift for finding source material that is going to um, not only speak on stage but but speak maybe even more vividly um, than, than it did in its original form. And I'm wondering if you could talk about your two forthcoming operas, mm-hmm. both of which feel like they, they are using, or I imagine that they will use the medium to, to really sort of blow up stories, whether or not they come from a specific source or just from, from the world. Can you talk about those, those two pieces?
0: Sure. Um, well, so my my fourth opera is called The Listeners, um, and it's a collaboration with my librettist Royce Vavrick and also the Canadian playwright Jordan Tannehill. and um, it, you know, began as a conversation between the three of us, um, and it's it's an original story that, um, you know, was sort of created to be an opera first, which is very exciting, um, and so. The listener centers on a a middle-aged woman living in the American Southwest in what I imagine is like a suburb of Vegas, (laughs) although it's not specified. And she starts to hear a mysterious noise. And um, it's driving her crazy. She can't work. She can't, you know, it's ruining her family life, ruining her marriage. And she eventually finds a sort of self-help group in the neighborhood that is supporting people who also hear this noise. And she realizes that she's not alone. This is so reassuring. And it's run by this very charismatic man in his 60s named Howard Bard Um, and it eventually takes on cult-like dimensions Mm -hmm. and we realize by you know the beginning of the second act that that she is in a cult Mm. and um and all the sort of familiar tropes of cult life, you know, play out, you know, and that this leader takes advantage of other people in the cult in various ways. There's a lot of emotional manipulation and blackmail. And in the end, I don't think that this is spoiling anything to tell you that she ends up taking it over. Mm. She takes over the cult. And we're left with this question of, you know, is she, will she also be corrupted by this power? Mm. Um and I, so this was an example of, of I, something where I had noticed all these stories about cults. You know, we all watched Wild Wild Country, and, <laughs> um, you know, The Vow. Um, there's a, an amazing movie called Holy Hell, which um, centers on a, a cult in California. So it just there's there's so much media about that. And I thought, well, you know, what? Why is this resonating with people? Mm. Um, and. So it really, for me, I was interested in writing an opera about the pull of charismatic leaders Mm. um, and the way that they manipulate situations to their own benefit um, and just the appeal of of that pre-made family Mm. and, you know, not looking down at all on people who ended up in these situations, but really seeing the appeal and showing that side of it in the opera as well.
3: I love that because that feels really in line in a funny way with proving up to me. Just starting out with like, well, wait a second, people want to belong. I mean, this is mm-hmm. like such a natural desire. And like th- I think the cult ability, that, that ability to kind of predate upon people's best desires and warp mm-hmm. them and put them to a different use, is, that is a horror story. It is. Um, you know? Yeah,
0: and so common, yeah. you know, in so many different kinds of relationships. Yeah.
2: yeah. I think somehow I have, I believe, invented... Uh, an origin story, which may have absolutely nothing to do with the listeners, having to do with data centers and noise coming off of data centers. Maybe I just read news stories about, or, or is is did I not make this up?
0: Well, so there's that's the other aspect of it, okay. just the mysterious noise. Right. So there's been all these articles about Havana Syndrome, right? Um, noise and sound as a weapon, right. Which obviously feels very operatic, yes. And so that. I think that that's in the ether, right. you know, okay. literally.
2: <laughs> I, for some reason, I, I had this recollection of you saying, "Oh yeah, there are these people who are hearing this mysterious noise," and then it turns out there's a data center nearby. <laughs> <laughs> <maybe> no, I...
0: <laughs> but that's totally. That sounds like something. That like a conversation I would have
3: with you. That's a, that's a push <laughs> notification that we yeah, just yeah. got.
2: <laughs> Oregon man hears noise. Yeah. Um, okay. So so then. Um, Returning to to operas that come out of a specific source material, um, you may be already tired of talking about this, but you've been commissioned by the Metropolitan Opera to adapt George Saunders' novel Lincoln and the Bardo. For anyone who's read the novel, it's pretty clear how that could live on stage, but um, I'm curious to know, given that operas are, you know, it's a heavy lift. It's like having a child. It takes, there's a you know, three trimesters and then three more trimesters and then maybe three more trimesters um, to birth an opera. So if you're going to take one on, you have to really love what it is. And what what about um, George Saunders' novel felt to you like the right next big thing?
0: Sure. Well, um, there there are certain stories that I read that I feel can easily translate themselves into operas. And I feel this way about Karen's work too. So, um, and a, a big part of that is just um, the surreal, magical element. I, I think opera on its own is very surreal and weird. Mm-hmm. And like, you can quote me on that <laughs> until the end of end of time. Like, everyone's singing their thoughts. Like, we are <laughs> not in reality. Um, and all these crazy things can happen on stage, and, and and time is shrunken and expanded, and it's just very surreal. So I, th- I feel like my favorite operas are operas that embrace that, and um, stories that embrace that. And I think Karen's work has that. George's work has that. Um, so, um, and it was really funny when I when we approached George about um, optioning Lincoln in the Bardo and turning it into an opera. Um, you know, we always, I'm always assuming that everyone's going to say, no, that's terrible. Don't you dare touch my work, you know, (laughs) but, um, George said, and I'm sort of paraphrasing him here. He's like, I'm so glad you contacted me because when I wrote this, I imagined it as an opera. Mm. And this to me was so Mm. great, you know, because I have tons of ideas all the time that I would probably make better short stories or films, but I, am a composer, so they're operas, you know, and, um, just to know that he thought of it that way was, was really exciting, um. yeah.
2: And you're working directly with him on the adaptation?
0: A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So he he's great. I mean, he's sort of, again, like Karen, like giving us total freedom to go in a direction that may not have been precisely what he originally right. imagined um, and chiming in. And I, and he loves to be part of the process, but he's giving us a lot of freedom yeah. too. And I, I, I love that he, he wants to be at all the rehearsals. Yeah. I love that Karen came to rehearsals. I love when people are interested in, in how this stuff gets on stage yeah. too.
2: The little bit that I've interacted with him, he's just like one of the most lovely human beings you could possibly imagine. Yeah. And and it also seems like he has a deep a close friend of mine adapted one of his stories into a play and he seems to have a really deep love of theater. And I seem to recall that he actually began writing Lincoln and the Bardo as a play years and years ago and then set it aside for a long time and came back to it. Um, so it seems like you found a great a great partner there. Um, have the two of you thought about doing any further work together?
0: Yes, we have. <laughs> is there? A- <laughs> we do sorry, do we No, want to no.
3: Go? I'm so, I'm so take it away, Missy. Um
0: but well, we um are in in the process of working on actually two future large-scale theatrical pieces. Ooh. Um, is there anything
2: you can reveal at the stage? Not really, okay. unfortunately no. <laughs> no.
0: But um but just I can reveal that you know we're we are rethinking the way that these operas happen. And mm. it's so often so much of opera is adaptation and mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with that. But my feeling was like, there's so many brilliant writers who, um, whose superpower is coming up with these incredible surreal, mm. uh, you know, tales and why not harness that and to have it something live as an opera or a musical first, you know? So, um, yeah, so it's been a pleasure to work with Karen and and Royce, you know, sort of as a as a trio, um, you know, bringing a new story into being for the idea that it will be an opera. So very cool. That's all we can say. Sorry.
2: <laughs> that's okay.
3: Yeah, I, you know, writing is such a solitary and weird endeavor, and um, to I think that just to kind of get to play with mm-hmm. other sensibilities and people like geniuses like Royce and Missy, who's Imaginations work in these different ways, and make something from the ground up is so fun and really freeing. Speaking of like liber liberate, yeah, so it's great.
2: One of the things I really admire about this and other stories of yours is the the extent to which um, politics are ambient but never heavy handed. And I feel that we are living in a moment in which um, I wonder, Missy, if you want to talk about this as well. I feel like institutions the institutions that i work with as a composer are sometimes really explicit and often i think crude in the extent to which they want to be a part of the conversation and i'm thinking back to something missy that you said which i really uh, which really resonates with me which is that you're interested in human stories and um so often these days institutions will say we want an issues piece we want something that is in conversation you know with the moment and we reward things that that wear their ideological colors on on their sleeve often at the expense i think of psychological depth and and the basic fact that what brings us to the theater or to the opera or to the page is um, identification with character, right? And, and the way that it activates empathy. Um, and I guess, so I'm, I'm curious to know, maybe starting with you, Missy, um, and thinking about the relationship between your life as a citizen and your life as an artist and the intersection of the two and this moment that we're in, can you sort of shed, shed some light on your, your thinking about that? It's a small question. <laughs> it's a small question.
0: No, I got this. Um, you know, yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that, that drew me to proving up Karen's work in general is, is this open-endedness. You know, whatever horror, um, whatever empathy, um, whatever compassion you can imagine in your own mind and feel in the moment is going to be much more powerful than me you know having an aria where a character is like i really miss my family you know yeah. like that's not compelling no yeah, right. and and i'm thinking of um in one of the arias improving up you know our our Um, boy hero miles sings about how all these things he's remembering from his family so times when you know a fleecy tarantula crawled across his mouth and his brother laughed and then the brother laughed so hard that miles started to laugh so in that story i start to feel things about like my family and my Mm -hmm. sister my relationship and what what do i remember from my childhood and um all it's all these collections of of narratives that that Give the feeling of, of home. And, and it's, you know, and so me reflecting on that and myself is gonna be much more powerful than mm-hmm. us, you know, having an aria that spells everything out. Mm-hmm. And so that is true for all aspects of the work. That's true for the horror and the violence and um, the turn. And you know, there has to be, has to be, I think, open enough that so it leaves room for the imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to your point about. You know, being a, a citizen and being and being a composer. I mean, I I think all the time about you know what is my greatest power in in being a composer. And, you know, often it's in hiring, you know, the most diverse, mm-hmm. eclectic group of singers who you know, and and changing that landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we have tried to do with every production of of this opera and all the other ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't think it's. I'm not so interested in setting to music the language of politics that we hear every day. I think the superpower is in leaving space and presenting it in in an unexpected way.
1: That was Oregon Symphony creative chair Gabriel Kahane, composer Missy Mazzoli, and writer Karen Russell in a conversation from Oregon Symphony's Open Music program. The next Open Music is on Friday, June 3rd with Natalie Zwashem and Gabriel Kahane at the Alberta Rose Theater. Learn more at orsymphony.org. This has been Literary Arts, The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor. The show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for radio and podcast, with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem. Special thanks to literary arts marketing staff, Jyoti Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.